We're in the book of Romans this morning. We've said that um, the, the Bible is 66 books and it's one unified story. That's what we've been saying. Uh, one unified story, the story of creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. We spent the last two months drilling down in Genesis chapters 1 through 4 on the beginning of that story, creation and fall, and, and now we're going to spend an extended period of time in the book of Romans chapters 1 through 4 before we conclude several weeks later in the book of Revelation, um, looking at the world that is yet to come. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for God's good news, which he promised through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. The good news about his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who was marked out powerfully as the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we've received grace and apostleship to bring about believing obedience among all the nations for the sake of his name. And that includes you too, who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. This letter comes to all in Rome who love God and are called to be his saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say first that I thank my God for all of you through Jesus Christ. Because your faith is being reported all over the world, which is a bit of hyperbole. I mean, it's not that every human being on the face of planet Earth at that time had heard about the church in Rome. I mean, it's interesting. The church of Rome, I mean, we're talking about a small church, smaller than the, the number of people in this room today. Probably 150 or so people at this time. But all the world has heard of it insofar as all the Christians throughout kind of the holy internet, you would call it, um, have heard among our circles of relationships that there is a church in the capital city, in Rome itself. And he goes on, verse 9, God is my witness, the God I worship in my spirit and the good news of his Son, that I never stop remembering you in my prayers. I ask God and again and again that somehow at last I may now be able in his good purposes to come to you. I'm longing to see you. I want to share with you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Uh, that is, I want to encourage you and be encouraged by you in the faith you and I share together. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. I want to bear some fruit among you, as I have been doing among the other non-Jewish people, Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and literally the word here is barbarians. When you think of the word barbarian, what, what do you picture? You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Conan. <laughs> but the barbarians would simply be all persons of the Roman Empire who were not cultured. They were not um, part of, they, they didn't speak Greek, they didn't read Greek journals, they, they weren't into Greek art and culture, they were uh, barbarians. Funny, most of our ancestry, you ask yourself the question, where are my ancestors in the Bible? Well, if you're German, or you're Scottish, or you're, there they are, right there, in verse 14, the barbarians, there's your ancestors. Both to the wise, see, I'm under obligation, both to the wise and the foolish, that is why I, I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to, to you who are in Rome. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also equally to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, telling us how God makes us right in his sight. This whole thing is accomplished from start to finish by faith. Just as it is written, by faith the righteous person shall live, or by faith the righteous person shall have life. What a great passage. I love it. One of the best passages in all the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for such a wonderful word to hear today. You've heard this expression before, uh, the elephant in the room. What is the elephant in the room? The longer you live, the more you become aware of the fact that elephants appear in our living rooms, in our bedrooms, in our hallways with surprising frequency. There are issues between us that we have a very difficult time talking about. Uh, And in my earlier years, when I was young and dumb, my attitude was to take the frontal assault at the elephant in the room. You know, let's just talk about it. What's the issue? Let's put it out on the table. Let's discuss. Um, That is not always the best way to handle things. You discover that if there is an elephant in the room, the elephant is hiding and he does not want to be disturbed. So if you run in and just yank, rip the curtain that's covering the elephant off of him, I, elephants don't like that. They get angry. It's best to handle elephants delicately. The elephant in the room the Apostle Paul needed to address at the beginning of this letter is, is his absence from Rome. Why have you not come and visited us? If you are the divinely appointed apostle to the entire non-Jewish world, to the Gentiles, why haven't you yet visited the largest Gentile city in the inhabited world? That's kind of strange, isn't it? Like, if this is your territory and jurisdiction, it would be kind of like some guy claiming to be the archbishop of California, but never happening to visit the churches of Los Angeles after 10 and 15 years on the job. You say, what's the deal with this guy? And see how delicately and diplomatically Paul handles this. What does he write? He says, I've, I've wanted to come to you. I, God is my witness. I've wanted to visit you many times. And it's, it's just been a case that circumstances have gotten in the way. But my failure to visit is not a matter of disinterest. I pray for you constantly. I lo- I pr- I'm always praying for you. And I long to meet face-to-face with you so that we can mutually benefit from each other's faith. In fact, I think that I'm going to be able to visit you on my way as I'm journeying on to Spain, which, if you know the story, it, it didn't work out that way for him. But since Paul cannot be there face-to-face and strengthen them personally, face-to-face, he writes this letter, this It's a letter. Oh, man, it's a letter. Super dense theological letter where he is unpacking a word that you and I use all the time. Um, We'll talk more about it today. 
gospel. He's unpacking the gospel. And most scholars recognize and agree verses 16 and 17 serve as the thesis statement for this letter. What does it it, uh, say right there? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also then to the, to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, telling us, that how, how, telling us how God makes us right in his sight. And this is accomplished from start to finish by faith. So what I want to talk about briefly today is the content of the, this gospel, the content of the gospel, the shame of the gospel, and then the need for the gospel. Last summer, we started a course. It's called Christianity Explored, a seven-week Bible study course that was developed by British pastor Rico Tice, which introduces people to the basics of the Christian faith. It's a really good course. And I would say, if you know anybody who is interested in exploring Christianity, I would bend over backwards to get the opportunity to to lead that course with them or with you in in concert together, uh, because it's really well done. So Rico Tice, he grew up in the church, um, and it was his brother, actually, who led him to faith in Jesus. And here's how it happened. He said, Rico, you, you just don't understand what Christianity is about. You think it's all about churches and rules and leaving your brain at the door and having all your fun spoiled, but that's not what it's about. Christianity is about Christ. And he explained to me that that word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not his second name. It's like a title, a president or prime minister, the guys that we just prayed for in Prayers for Church and World a minute ago. It means, Christ means God's only chosen king. It was an extremely dangerous word to write to the city of Rome at this time because, you know, the Roman emperors were said to have divine authority. So to speak of Jesus as God's only true representative on on earth, that's the type of stuff that got you thrown into the Colosseum and eaten by the lions. He said, Rico, Christianity is good news about Jesus Christ. And so that word good news, it's it's a compound word in the Greek. Euangelion. You is simply good. And angelion, what does that kind of sound like? Sounds similar to the word angel. And an angel is somebody who is a messenger. An angel is a herald. Hark the herald angels sing. And and a messenger who who brings an announcement to people. And so in the ancient world, they they were familiar with euangelion. I mean, that's, that's what would happen when a general achieved a great military victory. How did the news of that victory spread? You would send a runner from the battlefield who's just, you know, sprint back to the town and he's going to come to the city and announce, victory! We won! Good news! And he'll run to the next city. Victory! It's an announcement that brings, that brings joy to everybody who truly hears it. The good news is God's only chosen king has defeated death. He has crushed Satan. He has made it possible so that uh, Jewish people and non-Jewish people can together be the people of God. 
We, we can together be the new community that God has intended to be on this planet. We, we can have our sins forgiven. We can sing praises off the same sheet of music. That is, that's, that's the good news. I think it's really strange. Whenever we talk about Judaism and Israel and Jewishness, I mean, if you're not familiar with Christianity, you're like, why are you even talking about that? It's a small little country in the, in the Middle East. Like, why would that even factor into the conversation? Well, it's because of the whole Old Testament. God's plan was to rescue this world through the family of Abraham, through the Jews. And so that was the pattern that Paul is referring to right here. It's to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. God's intention was always that Israel would be kind of transformed into what she was meant to be, and then she would likewise go out and transform the world. So it's Jew first, then to the rest of the world, and that's one of the reasons, of course, why Jesus begins his ministry in the country of Israel. He doesn't start it in Italy or Spain or France, but it's in Israel, to the Jew first. And when he begins his public ministry, do you ever catch this? He starts out by proclaiming the gospel. Like the very first words out of the, the gospel of Mark is the, the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, the gospel is here. And you know what he does not say? He does not say, hey, everybody, get the, get the memo. I'm going to die for your sins and you're all going to go to heaven. He doesn't start out the gospel that way. Um, he, he's picking up on this ancient storyline of God's people needing to be rescued from their slavery, needing to be kind of drug out of the ditch that they are in by God's only chosen king. Um, the, a new king has come to rescue Israel from her slavery and to shepherd her into the glorious age of salvation in the future and with her, the rest of the world. So the gospel here is the announcement that Jesus is, verse 3, descended from David and raised from the dead by the Spirit. To tell the gospel is simply to tell the story of Jesus. One of the ways that we sometimes describe it is the gospel is cradle, cross, and crown. The gospel is Bethlehem, it is Golgotha, and it's the courts of heaven. It is the story of Jesus, the life, death, and continuing, continuing resurrected life of Jesus. That's the good news, and it's great news. Um, you may have heard the popular expression before, um, it's kind of pop, very popular today. Preach the gospel. Use words only if necessary. Ever heard that before? Preach the gospel. Use words only if necessary. The problem with that expression is it's completely wrong. <laughs> like, totally wrong. Because the gospel is a public announcement. And the, the only reason uh, you would say no words, only actions, is if you believe the gospel is something other than an announcement. Um, it's a public announcement. It's not, it's not the way to a moral life. It, it requires words. Yeah. Unfortunately, most people don't think of the gospel as an announcement. If you were to ask the average Idahoan, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is the essence of Christianity? I mean, the average person on the street is going to say, well, I think it means to try to live like Jesus and try to love your neighbor and live by the golden rule. And 
I'm all for that. I hope you are too. It's great to follow Jesus' teaching. Let's all do that. But friends, that's not news. That's what we call advice. That's good advice. But the gospel is not good advice. It's good news about Jesus. That's not to say that the belief in the gospel doesn't change the way that you live your life. Of course it does. Paul says that part of his mission is to bring about faithful obedience among all the people of the earth. But the gospel is not good advice about what you must do. It's primarily good news about what's already been done for you. Something that has already happened. A victory cry that goes out over the whole face of the earth. And if you're visiting this morning, there's something that you should know about our church. If you come and, and stay with us for a little while, you will see a pattern. Pretty much every sermon that I preach, it always seems to end up talking about Jesus at some point. You know, I always, I always want to bring it back to Jesus. Pretty much, if you go to community group, pretty much all, all the community, community groups are supposed to circle back to Jesus. Every prayer group, every Sunday school, uh, it ends up talking about Jesus. There's a reason for that. It's because that's the good news. It's about him. And Jesus was very critical of people who spent all of their time studying their Bibles, but it didn't lead them back to him. I must be getting old because I really like to watch the Antiques Roadshow. Uh, it's very copacetic. It has a calming effect on me when I watch it. Uh, there was an episode back in 2002 from Albuquerque, New Mexico, a woman brought in a small marble statue that was obviously Asian in its origin. It was a carving of a lion. Well, it happened to be that the guy who was doing the appraisal on this show, his expertise was Asian art. So it was right in his wheelhouse. So the, the guy starts out, and they always start off kind of coy, like, what do you know about this? How did you, how did you discover this? I mean, he knows everything about it, but he's trying to probe and find out what she knows. The lady says, well, my mom and dad used to travel in China, and they bought this statue at an outdoor market. Uh, it's been in my home for most of my life, and a friend of mine walked in and happened to see it and said, you know, that could be from the Ming Dynasty. You might want to take it to the roadshow and have it appraised. At that point, you, you can go back and watch it on PBS. It's online. At that point, the appraiser, he almost starts to cry. He's so moved, he starts to choke up, and he has to, like, comprise himself and, and get himself together before he continues on. He says, this is, this is exquisite. This is an example, it's the greatest example of Chinese art we have ever had on our show. The carving, and he has, so he has one of those tray tables, and he's just spinning it, and he says, look at it from every angle. The carving is beautiful. The workmanship is stunning. The man who did this or the woman who did this was truly a master. You can see the muscles rippling under the surface. This is the finest quality of marble. You, it's truly magnificent. And if you look at it this way, and if you look at it that way, uh, I see tiny little versions of this all the time that come in, uh, but never, never have I seen one like this. The only, the only problem is that uh, it's not from the Ming Dynasty. It's actually from the Tang Dynasty, which was the golden age of Chinese art, 6th century to the 9th century. Um, and this is the finest example I have ever seen. It's worth you know, millions of dollars. It's amazing from every angle. 
If the gospel, how should I put this? Good advice, good advice never takes your breath away like that. You realize that? Good advice never makes you want to cry. Yeah, I mean, you're thankful for it. A friend gives you really good advice. Oh, thank you. That was, that was helpful. That was, that was good. But, but it's only something that is truly exquisite, that's there, that's news, that's a lion, that's carved. That's, that's what makes the gospel so great. It's not about us. It's about him. Amen? Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Why would Paul be ashamed of the gospel? Verse 16 You know, when somebody says something along the lines of, I'm not ashamed of him, I'm not ashamed of her, I'm not ashamed of that, it kind of implies, doesn't it, that there might be some kind, might be reason to be ashamed, otherwise you wouldn't have said that in the first place. What are some of the reasons that these early Christians in Rome might be ashamed? Well, several. Remember, do you remember how in Roman mythology, the city of Rome came to be? How was the city of Rome in Roman mythology, founded. Well, you had your, your twin brothers, Romulus and Remus. The king in the city, Italian city that they grew up in, Alba Longa, was frightened by the two brothers. Maybe there was a prophecy made of the two of them. So he cast them into the Tiber River, you know, leaving them to drown, leaving them for dead. Did that work? No. They swim or float down the Tiber and are rescued by None other than a wolf, a she-wolf, who adopts them as her own two pups and raises them on her, uh, her own milk. She feeds them with her milk. These brothers, unsurprisingly, grow up very wild and very strong. Uh, and like all these stories uh, go, they, they eventually return to the city and overthrow the king who was trying to keep them from uh, living in the first place, who had left them for dead. Romulus and Remus decide to build a, a city for themselves. And what better place to choose to build the city than the spot where the she-wolf had nursed them to life? So Romulus is the one who, who starts. He begins to build the city of Rome on Palatine Hill. And he's building up, what's the first thing you build in a city? Well, you probably build your walls because otherwise you're going to die. <laughs> he starts to build up the walls of the city of Rome. And Remus, his brother, makes fun at him. He jeers at him. How, how pathetic your walls are. They're so low. And to prove his point, he leaps over the walls of Rome into the center of the city. And Romulus, in a fit of rage, Fratricide, just like last week, he kills his brother, saying, So shall perish whoever else tries to leap over my battlements. It's legendary, I realize that. But you know, in people's, in humans' legendary accounts of things, you can kind of get a feel for their cultural values, can't you? You can kind of get a feel of the way they see themselves, the way they think about themselves. Rome, she was proud, she was strong, she was aggressive. She was violent. She was the home of the Caesars. She was, uh, she was the seat of the ancient generals that conquered all of antiquity. She was the city who was the conqueror and rarely the conquered. She was the city that lived on when all of their cities were destroyed. Even today, what is the name, the, the nickname? Brian, what's the nickname of Rome today? It's the eternal city. Why? Because she is the city who will never die, who can never die. 
So if you're a Roman, what are your values? You value strength, might, power, dignity, basically like everything that Christianity is not. (laughs) What did a Roman think about about the gospel? Well, if you turn on page 514 in your bulletin, you'll see. For some of you, this might be the very first time you have seen this. Archaeologists uncovered this. It's a drawing on a plaster wall. They uncovered it during their excavations of Palatine Hill. It dates to about a hundred years after Paul's letter was written to the Romans. And for those of you who are listening online, you can't see it. I'm just going to describe it to you. Clearly depicted as a boy standing in an attitude of worship with one hand upraised. The object of his devotion is a figure on a cross. The figure has the body of a man, but has the head of a donkey. And underneath the picture are scribbled in, in a very rude, rudimentary handwriting. It says, Alaximenos, which is the boy, Alaximenos worships his God. Why am I echoing so bad, Nate? (laughs) No idea? Alaximenos worships his God. It's easy to imagine how this graffiti came to be. Obviously, some Roman boys decided that they would mock their Christian friend. What kind of God would be crucified? Well, only a jackass. You should be ashamed because you worship essentially a jackass for a God. Your God was crucified by our military. How utterly shameful to come to the city of Rome and tell us that your God is the only chosen king when when we hung him up uh, and dressed him down. Have you? How many of you have seen that uh, that picture before? So then, you know the next part of the story is. And in another part of the cave, there is written um, in a different handwriting, but sometime a little bit later, these words, Alaximenos is faithful. Another Christian saw this picture uh, and, and said, you're faithful. And there's plenty of reasons that they would be ashamed of the gospel. You know, one of them, another one of them, How do you think the gospel got to the city of Rome in the first place? It wasn't by the Apostle Paul. Paul had never visited Rome before. We get a hint of how how it got there at the end of his letter. In chapter 16 of Romans, Paul goes on and he gives... Greetings. He, he singles out members, individual members of the congregation and basically says, hey, I want to greet you, I want to greet you, I want to greet you. So I give my greetings to Ampliatus and to Stachus, Herodian, Perseus, Rufus, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas. When you go back, when scholars study those names, 17 of the 24 names at the book at the end of Romans there are slave names. They're all the names of slaves or, for, or former slaves. 
125 years later, after Paul wrote this letter, a a very famous Roman intellectual by the name of Celsus penned uh, a blistering attack on Christianity. And he, he said, he said a lot in this letter, but he said that this is the sign that should be hung outside of all Christian churches. Quote, let no cultured person draw near. Nobody wise, nobody sensible, for all that kind of thing we count as evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting of sense and culture, if any man is a fool, then let him come boldly into this house. He said it is f- Christianity is for fools. And then he goes on to speak about, about how vulgar and uneducated uh, the, the Christian people were. Guys, Our mothers and fathers in the faith were slaves. We we owe our ancestry to the riffraff, to slaves. The people who are attracted to early Christianity, now there were some rich and there were some sophisticated, but by and large, it was not the guys with grad degrees who read The Economist and The Wall Street Journal in their free time. It It was the slaves. It was the riffraff of society. It would be easy to be ashamed of a family like that. That's actually one of our biggest challenges, isn't it, today? We are, we are ashamed of a lot of our other uh, fellow Christians. <laughs> we are ashamed of our fellow Christians. Because sometimes Christians do the craziest, most horrible things in the name of Jesus. And we're like, eh, we, I, he's not in my family. They experience that too. There's a lot to be embarrassed about, about even, you know, the way that we think of faith in the 21st century today. Our faith, there are, we hold to a lot of embarrassing and offensive uh, beliefs. So we say that there are not lots and lots of gods out there, uh, nor is there some impersonal force at the end, at the center of the universe. Rather, we say there is a three-person God, one God in three persons who's at the heart of the universe, who became a man and who, who's, uh, the, who was crucified and resurrected. The single most important event in the history of the world is God being crucified. Um, we say things like that Jesus is not one of many options. It's, it's not like there are 15 different ways to the top of the mountain. He is the, he's the only way. It's what we maintain. He maintains that. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. We say that at the return of Jesus, every knee on this earth will bow. Every Jewish knee, every Muslim knee, every Hindu, atheist, Scientologist, everyone will bow at, on a day of judgment, there will be a final judgment, a judgment that nobody, none of us is ready for on our own. And after that judgment will follow everlasting life for every man and woman of the world or everlasting destruction. On and on I could go. I mean, there's a lot of offensive beliefs that we maintain. And you know, our culture reminds us that. They remind us, they do remind us of just how how narrow-minded you people are. Michael Burt, who has that great quote on the front of the bulletin, says, he's a professor down in Australia, 
He wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. He says, I get tired of being called an uncultured, narrow-minded, silly, superstitious, bigoted Neanderthal. Yeah, I really do. (laughs) Nobody likes to be called that. Just holding to basic Christian doctrine, things Christians have been believing for 2,000 years, hey, it's tough. It's tough in our world. You know, at college, at work, or even in your family, it can feel like you've got one big target painted on your forehead if you simply believe in things that Christians have believed for 2,000 years. And the, the, um, the temptation is uh, when you're getting so much heat and pressure, it's always to change your message. You know, take your message and make it more palatable for the, 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 the ears that are around you. He says, when I am tempted to do so, I think about Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna, who was put on trial in the middle of the Roman Colosseum and was asked to swear allegiance to Caesar. The old bishop there in the Colosseum replied, 86 years of my life I have served him, and, and he never did me any wrong. Why would I turn now from my king and my savior? Amen to that. I would rather have the deep, deep love of Jesus any day of the week than all the friends, fame, or even simple acceptance that being ashamed of Christ might afford me. No, I am not going to sell out my Lord to be found acceptable. When they say change your beliefs or you're a bigot and we will shun you, I realize that we inherited a faith where our spiritual mothers and fathers took the heat themselves by holding to wildly unpopular beliefs. Can I say that again? You inherited a faith where your spiritual mothers and fathers were willing to take the heat and be characterized as absolute loons and shunned and thrown into the Colosseum like, why would you sell out now? Why would you try to, try to uh, uh, satisfy 21st century now? That is not an option for the faithful Christian. It's not. My last point is uh, short, and I'll just go to it really quickly here. It's this. Everybody needs the same gospel. Everybody needs the same gospel. If someone came into All Saints this morning from a non-church background, maybe her parents were atheists or agnostics, uh, and they were very insistent that you know, whatever you do, don't get messed up with religion. Don't get caught into that uh, group think. You need to be an independent thinker. And so she's brought up that way, and she kind of has a skeptical uh, bent towards her. But somehow she made it to church today, and she's starting to think about these things. What, is, what does that girl need? Well, she needs the gospel. What if you're the person who grew up with this stuff and you've been around it for decades and honestly you're bored and you don't feel like reading your Bible and when you pray you're immediately headed off into daydream mode? What is it that you need? Well, we all need the same thing. We all need the same gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God. It is the power to save. You may be like, I didn't know that I was lost. I didn't know that I needed to be saved. Well, once you figure out that you're lost, then you're ready to be saved. And it's for everybody. Uh, It's the kind of news that makes people dance in the streets and hug complete strangers. It's the best news 
In fact, if you, if you hear the gospel and do not agree that it is the best news your ears have ever, you know, uh, your, eyes have ever, ever, you, your eyes have ever laid on or your ears have ever heard, if you don't think it's the best news, then you haven't actually heard it yet. Because it is the news. Death is defeated. Evil is beaten. Sin is crushed. Not only does it announce the way of salvation, but it actually brings salvation to those who hear it with faith. And that's why you can be proud of it. You can be very proud of it. It's not, it's not, good, not good advice. It's, it's great news about God's only chosen king. The best news. Uh, and it's amazing, friends. It is amazing, amazing from every angle that you look at it.